Would you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 65 and 66? I hope that you brought your spiritual appetites today because we are in for a feast as we walk through these uh, two chapters of Scripture. It's a long uh, passage, so I'm not going to read it at the beginning. We'll refer to it as we go along. So please have your Bibles open. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chairs uh, underneath where you are sitting. You can take those to follow along with us. But let me pray for God's Word as we begin. Father, your Word is powerful. It is truth. And this passage that we're going to look at today is both sobering as well as encouraging. What a great hope we have. The awesome things that you have prepared for us in heaven are beyond our imagination. And how glorious it will be to one day stand in the presence of the great I am. Without fault, without shame, but pure and holy in your sight. It is amazing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people as we listen to your word today and that you would use me, speak through me to make it as clear as I can. And ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a couple questions. The first question is this. How many of you would like to go to heaven when you die? Show of hands. All right, hopefully everybody, that's the easy question. Now the second question is, and I want you to be honest here, how many would like to go today? <laughs> All right, well, that's good. You know, I, I take that from Lewis Smedes, who was a professor who would teach at a Christian college, and he used to ask his students those two questions when they came back in the fall. And, of course, everybody would raise their hands on the first one, that they all want to go to heaven when they die. But the second question was kind of like there'd be a couple students, you know, maybe nervously raising their hand and then kind of looking around to see if anybody else did. And often they were the only ones. It's that most of us <laughs> would rather take a rain check on that and, you know, we're not planning to go today. We want to go to heaven, but weren't really thinking of it right at this moment. But then Professor Smeeds would ask them this question. He said, how many of you would like to live in a world that was set straight once and for all? A world in which there was no more suffering. There's no more terrorism. There's no more child abuse. There's no more evil in our world. Um, sin, sorrow, death are all gone away. And of course, all of them would say, you know, yes, I want to live in that kind of world. And then he would say, if that's the kind of world that you want to live in, heaven's going to be an awesome place. The chapters that we're looking at today in Isaiah um, give us a picture of what that new heaven and new earth will be like. And it is beautiful. We're going to finish our brief study in Isaiah, uh, where we have been this summer, and I hope this book has been an encouragement to you. I know as I've gone through it, I've, I felt like, boy, I want to go back and do this again. I mean, I want, to, I want to dig into it even more because this was really fun. These two chapters come as the answer to the cry of God's people in chapter 64. In chapter 64, that first verse is the cry of God's people who say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. 
There were people crying out and saying, God, why don't you do something? God, why don't you tear open the heavens and come down and make things right once and for all? It's the cry of our heart as New Testament believers when we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Have you ever prayed that? Do you long for a day when God will make all things new and when suffering and sorrow will end and when our struggle with sin will be done forever? When this world will be all that God intended it to be Yes, that is the cry of our heart too. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we are expressing. And what Isaiah wants us to know and wanted God's people to know back then is to pray that kind of prayer though is to pray for the end of the world. And it is a prayer that should be prayed, but it should not be prayed lightly because of what it means. And that's what we're going to look at in this passage. What will that day bring when the Lord returns? He tells us, first of all, in chapter 65, that it will bring judgment and salvation. And the problem in Israel at that time is that some were praying that prayer God, why don't you do something? Why don't you come? But they were not ready for the Lord's return. I mean, they, they were religious, if you will. They were going through the motions of temple worship. But their heart was not right with God. They were continuing to do as they pleased, as we saw in our previous studies. And so God comes. And in chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, he says this. He said, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. What's he talking about there? Well, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Paul will pick up on this passage and he'll say, what God is talking about here is the day when he turns to the Gentiles. Because of the rejection of his Messiah by his own people, he would turn to those who had not known him and he would bring them in. And to those who were his people, his chosen ones in the Old Testament, in verse 2 he said, All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations that he had given them this wonderful opportunity to know his son, the Messiah, and they had rejected it. They had time and time again refused to listen to the prophets. They had put them to death. They had turned against God's word. And he describes them in verses 3 to 5 as a people who continually provoke me to my very face. They offer sacrifices in gardens. They burn incense on altars of brick. They sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil. They eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of unclean meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. And see, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will repay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, 
both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defiled me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. He describes their worship as something that was not pleasing to him because their heart was not right with God. Judgment will come, and judgment will begin with his people Israel here, just like in the New Testament it says judgment begins with the house of God. It is us that he wants to purify first and prepare for his presence. And again in verse 7 I note how God often waits for the full measure of a nation's sins to come before he acts. That's what he did with the land of Canaan. That's why Abraham went down into Egypt and was there and God's people were there for 400 years before he would bring them into the land of Canaan. He waited for the full measure of their sins to come before judgment fell. It makes me wonder what God has in mind for the United States. How long will he wait if we continue to reject his word and go our own way? The day will come when God will act in judgment for all nations. He tells us in verses 8 and 9, though, that a remnant will be saved. He says, this is what the Lord says, as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and men say, don't destroy it, there is yet some good in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Who are these people? They are those who have remained faithful even through all of these trials. He calls them my chosen people. He calls them my servants. He calls them my people who seek me. And there has always been a remnant. There has been the true people of God who have with their heart cried out to God for justice, cried out for righteousness, cried out for the people around them to come into a relationship with Christ. These are those who have persevered and kept their trust in God. And they have placed their hope in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 as their Messiah as their Savior and Lord. They stand in contrast to those who rejected God's invitation. You see that in verses 11 and 12 where he says, but for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls mixed wine, of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. And you will all bend down for the slaughter, for I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. The people who know their God listen to him. Those who do not care to follow the Lord reject his instruction. They turn away from his invitation. They choose to go their own way. And the consequences of that decision are made clear in verses 13 to 16 when he says, my people will be blessed. But for those who have rejected him, it will not go well in that day. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, verse 13. 
My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing and out of the joy will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name to my chosen ones as a curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but his servants to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. God is going to act on behalf of his people. The day is coming when justice will be done. And God is preparing for us a place in the future that will be our new home. Jesus said in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And in that place, we will feel more at home than we have ever felt. C.S. Lewis called it the inconsolable longing. It is the longing of our heart as believers. And in Mere Christianity, he wrote this. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Secondly, Isaiah tells us that that day will bring a new heaven and a new earth. And we see that in verses 17 to 25. He said, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. This new heaven and earth will be like this present one in some ways, yet it is made new. And he tells us the former things will not be remembered. The sorrows of this life, the struggles of this life, the pain and the suffering will be gone, forgotten like a distant memory. Yet we will still recognize each other in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, Paul talked about those Thessalonian believers and one day seeing them again in heaven and how they would be his joy and his crown, the fruit of his ministry, and he would look forward to those relationships that they would have in eternity. And when we see each other in that place, we will see each other more glorious than we have ever been. Because our struggle with sin will be over and the dross will be removed and we will see each other as we were made to be. What an awesome thought. 
And the only command in that day will be, be glad and rejoice forever. What an awesome command that God wants us to be happy and he wants us to be happy eternally. He wants us to find our joy in him, our delight in the things that he has made and we will delight in those things but not in an idolatrous way. We'll delight in the things that he has made in a way that gives him all of the glory. Be glad and rejoice forever. God will rejoice over Jerusalem. He'll rejoice over what he has made and he will take delight in his people. Can you imagine the day when the only look on the Father's face will be one of joy? That when he looks, in, when he looks at us, there will be no frown, no disappointment, no anguish, but sheer joy in what he has made and what has happened in our life. What a beautiful sight. And we who in this world, if we were to look upon the Father today, would die because of his holiness, in that day we'll look upon our Savior Jesus and we will see him face to face. And we'll look upon the glory of God and we'll be drawn to it. We'll not, not run and try to hide ourselves, but we will run to our Father in heaven. Isaiah tries to describe what that new heaven and earth will be like in verses 20 to 25, and listen to what he writes here. He says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will enjoy uh, the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now what's going on here? Isaiah is describing for us what this new heavens and earth will be like, and it raises some questions in our mind because it sounds like people will live a really, really long time, but then they will die. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like that, doesn't it, when you read it? And there are two possible answers here that I think explain this. One is that it could be that Isaiah is talking about the millennium and the eternal state together. Prophets do that. They kind of telescope events together. And so we have in the future this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and we have the eternal state that follows that. And it may be that Isaiah is compressing those things together. But I think along with that, we need to remember that Isaiah is using poetic language here to describe what is to come. 
And he doesn't want us to press all the details, but to catch the main idea in each statement that he is making. And I want you to think about it like this. What he is saying is that never again will there be an untimely death. Never again will there be fruitless labor that feels like toil or a burden. Never again will there be children born to misfortune, to poverty, to neglect, to abuse. Never again will there be unanswered prayer. Before we even call, God will answer. While we are still speaking, God will hear because he will know our thoughts. And our thoughts will be good and pleasing to him. Even the present order of creation will be changed when he talks about things like the wolf and the lamb feeding together, the lion eating straw like the ox. But Satan will meet his final doom. The serpent will eat the dust of the earth. And there will be no more harm, no more evil. There will be peace and security. Do you see what he is describing here? What he's saying? It's paradise renewed. It's all those things that happened in the curse after the fall of Adam and the things that extended throughout the earth are now reversed. It is all changed. And that's what he is saying here. And it's hard for um, a writer to describe what heaven is going to be like. And so he uses this language to put it into terms that we can understand that every one of those things that occurred as a result of the fall are now changed forever. I think of the story that was told about Marco Polo when he made his famous journey to China in the 13th century. No other European had ever been there. And when he went there and he lived there for 17 years and then returned and he told the stories of what he had seen and heard, people did not believe him. He claimed that when he was 17, he went on this epic journey that lasted a quarter of the century. It took him across the steppes of Russia, the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the wastelands of Persia, over the top of the world through the Himalayas, he was the first European to enter China. And through an amazing set of circumstances, he became a favorite of the most powerful ruler on the planet at that time, the Kublai Khan. Mark, Mark saw cities that made European capitals look like roadside villages. The Khan's palace dwarfed the largest castles and cathedrals in Europe. It was so massive that its banquet room alone could seat 6,000 diners at one time, each eating on a plate of pure gold. Mark saw the world's first paper money. He marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. It would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing in the year 1267. He became the first Italian to taste that Chinese culinary invention, pasta. And as an officer of the Khan's court, he traveled to places no European would see for another 500 years. Well, after he had served the Kublai Khan for 17 years, he began his journey home to Venice. And he brought back with him gold, silk, and spices. 
And when he arrived home, people dismissed his stories of a mythical place called China. His family priest rebuked him for spinning lies. At his deathbed, his family, friends, and priests begged him to recant of his tales of China. But setting his jaw and gasping for breath, Marco Polo spoke his final words, I have not even told you half of what I saw. They just couldn't believe it. We read in the scripture that when the Apostle Paul was taken up into heaven, he saw things that he was not permitted to speak. So glorious, so awesome. But Paul, now is not the time to say it. Not, not the time to tell it. All he could say was what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's pretty awesome. We get glimpses of what heaven is going to be like, but we don't even know the half of it. And thirdly, what will that day bring? That day will bring either heaven or hell. In chapter 66, Isaiah describes two peoples and two destinies. In verse 1, he says, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, declares the Lord. God was not opposed to a temple being built for him on earth. He had Solomon build that first temple. But what he is telling us here is that earth is his temple. The heavens are his temple. He cannot be contained in a building built by human hands. And in this verse, what he is saying is that in heaven there will be no temple. There will be no temple in that new Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Revelation when he said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He goes on to say that this is the one I esteem. This is the one who will be in that heavenly place. It is he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. What Isaiah does here in these next verses is that he draws a line that cuts through every human heart. And either we know God or we do not. Either we have placed our faith in his Son as our Savior or we have rejected him. There's no middle ground here. It's either one or the other. And the people who belong to God are those who love him, who are humble, who are contrite, who freely admit their sin, and who tremble at his word, who honor his word as truth. But those who reject him, they are described like this. In verse 3, he says, But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. 
Whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. Well, what's going on here? Can you imagine how shocking that was when Isaiah wrote that and the people heard that? I mean, God, didn't you require all of this temple worship? Weren't we supposed to sacrifice the blood of bulls and lambs as an offering, as an atonement for our sin? Yes, they were to do it. But they were to do it with a right heart. What God is describing here is that if somebody is just going through the motions of religion and they really don't love God, it doesn't mean a thing. In fact, it is an offense to a holy God. Religion that is heartless does not please God. This is the difference between true and false religion. That those who truly love him want to honor him and they honor his word. And look at what he says in verse 5, if you do. He said, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers, quote here, who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city? Hear that noise from the temple? It's the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. He's talking about this contrast again between the people of God who love him and who love his word and those who reject him and reject his word and how God one day would put an end to all of this when the temple is destroyed. Let's be done with it forever. Let's put it away. He says that if you love God's word, there will be people who hate you. Even, quote, brothers, even people today, we would say, who claim to be Christian, who will hate you. If you believe that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant word of God, if you believe that what God says about marriage is the standard that we should hold to, if you believe that what God says about Morality is what we should live by and follow. There are going to be people in our world today, even those who call themselves Christians, that will mock you, that will accuse you of being bigoted or narrow-minded or old-fashioned or uh, people who are hypocritical, people who are bibliophiles, people who are stupid, who will say that what you believe is hate speech. We've seen it in our world. We've seen how in Canada, in those court cases, there are people who think that if you believe what the Bible teaches, you are not qualified to be a teacher in a public school. You're not qualified to be a judge or to practice law as an attorney because you are bigoted and you need to have a broader understanding of our world. There are people who honestly believe that and so don't be surprised that if you love God and you love his word that some are going to reject you or turn against you yet what does the Bible say it says the word of our God stands forever Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away 
He goes on to describe in verses 7 and 9 the birth of a new nation. A new nation's going to be born from the old. What is this that he's talking about? He says, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. You know, it's an interesting description of what is going on here. He is talking about the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost before the destruction of the temple that will come in A.D. 70. A new nation is going to be born. It is the people of God. It is the church that comes out of Israel and that is born and who will take this gospel to the ends of the earth. He describes how there will be a new Jerusalem in verses 10 and 11. He talks about how peace will come to that Jerusalem and to Israel like a river and the wealth of nations will come to them. And in that day, there will be a distinction made between the righteous and the wicked between those who love God and have placed their trust in him and those who have rejected him. And he describes that in verses 14 to 16. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. There is a difference made between the righteous and the wicked. And what he describes in verses 17 to 24 is really, again, this is amazing as well. He describes and tells us that there will be a great missionary outreach that will take place before the end. This great missionary outreach is going to occur and then the end will come. He talks about um, how these people will go out. Verse 19, for example, I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory and they will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your brothers from the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord and he's talking about this great missionary movement that's going to go out and share the gospel and will bring them in the remnant of Israel bring in the Gentiles bring in those who have come to know Christ and then the end shall come it's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 24 14 that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Wow. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and only those who trust in him will enter it. Those who rejected him will be turned away and will be separated from him for eternity. Verses 22 to 24. He says, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. 
from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. That's not a pretty picture, is it? In fact, it's quite sobering to think that Isaiah ends with this verse that talks about the reality of hell. Justice will be done. Sin will be punished. And in the end, no one goes to heaven who doesn't really want to be there. And no one goes to hell who hasn't chosen that all along. And God will be as glorified by his wrath as he is by his holiness and his love. It's sobering, isn't it, though? Isaiah is not a universalist. This book doesn't end with, and they all lived happily ever after. There is heaven, and there is hell. There is judgment, but there is also hope. That God has provided a way that we can be saved, And it is through the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Through this one who took upon himself our sins and died in our place. And who is that suffering servant? It is Jesus. And Jesus is the only way to the Father. Are you ready for his coming? Not until you have come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord are you ready. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today, if there is anyone who is unsure about their relationship with you, that they would turn to Jesus this morning to confess their sins, to ask his forgiveness, to invite him to come into their heart as Savior and Lord. If you will do that today, God will take you at your word. You could begin this relationship with him this very moment. Trust in Christ and trust in him alone for your salvation. And Jesus, thank you for this glorious future that awaits all of us who know you. And may it give us encouragement on those days that are difficult. May it give us hope on days when we feel that we are dealing with trials or the sorrows of this life. Thank you for what you have prepared for those who love you. In your name we pray, amen.